the exchange ideas between me and the scholars in the field, between the academic community, uh, not only kept me alive, but also provide me with a, a new ideas, new lenses to be able to see the Syrian conflict. And I learned a lot. This is actually uh, one of the great benefits of the exchange between the scholars in the, the new communities and uh, the scholars in the host countries. I'm your host, Assam Ibrahim, and this is the Science in Exile podcast. In this series, we get an insight into the lives of scientists who are in exile, and we discuss how the past, present, and future of science can be preserved across borders. This podcast is part of an ongoing refugee and displaced scientist initiative run by Science International. On today's episode, we have Radwan Ziad, a member of the Science in Exile Steering Committee, a Syrian author of over 30 books pertaining to Middle Eastern and Western policy. He's a senior fellow at the Arab Center in Washington, D.C., the founder of the Damascus Center for Human Rights Studies, the executive director at the Syrian Center for Political and Strategic Studies, and the managing editor of the Transitional Justice in the Arab World Project. Following many encounters with the Syrian security forces and threats of being imprisoned for his human rights activism, Radwan took a fellowship opportunity with the U.S. Institute of Peace in order to continue his research as an academic and human rights activist in the United States. With the situation in Syria at that time in the 90s, the difficult human rights abuses led me to be a human rights activist and more active in the in, in, in writing about the future of Syria and the need of the basic freedom, like freedom of uh, assembly, freedom of expression. It wasn't easy. They took my passport. I was under a government harassment, interrogation, travel ban uh, many, many times. When I, I, I wrote my book about Syria and decision-making process, and of course the book has been, as all my books, has been banned from Syria. Uh, I don't know how the, the Syrian security forces would get hold of a copy of the book. And they start interrogation, and I received a clear threat from the head of the security forces. He said, why you criticize the president and who you are to be criticized the president, and uh, next time you will be in prison. When I left the office, I was glad that I was still alive. And then I took the decision that there is no place for me here. I should try to leave Syria as soon as possible and also to continue my academic writing. I felt all my basic rights it's under threat. And then I accepted the fellowship I got from the U.S. Institute of Peace. I managed to leave along with my wife into Jordan, then from Jordan into the United States where I, I start a new career. But also still, I brought Syria with me in my heart. This is why most of my research and studies continue now around Syria. Because I believe that Syria, it's witnessing today, uh, is the tragedy of our times. This is the largest number of people being killed during a civil war in, in, in recent history. And then of course, now the Syrian spread in all over 132 countries around the world, according to the UN. This tragedy required all the efforts of the Syrian and anyone actually in the world to help Syria to be able to transition this dark history into more brighter future. If you could have a conversation with the version of yourself that left Syria, what would you now say to him? 
always I revisit actually that decision and of all what's going on in Syria I thought I took the right decision to leave Syria because I don't think now it's, it's have any chance to continue the work I done in the last 10 years if I'm still inside Syria. But of course, we lost our houses. My mother or my sister or brothers, is the whole families became refugees in, in Jordan, in Turkey, in Saudi Arabia, and in Germany. And uh, having been connected to even to my mother or my sister or brothers for almost uh, uh, six or seven years, I haven't seen them. But of course, the price I paid, it's uh, no way comparing to others who lost their beloved one. How has it been since you migrated to the U.S.? How has your research and work evolved or changed? And what were some of the opportunities that allowed um, those changes to occur? I mean, the United States afforded me a great opportunity uh, to be part of one of the prestigious universities. I became a visiting scholar at Harvard University, uh, New York University, Georgetown, and Columbia University. I did lectures in most of the U.S. universities also, like Princeton, Stanford, and others. The exchange ideas between me and the scholars in the field between the academic community not only kept me alive, but also provide me with a, a new ideas, new lenses to be able to see the Syrian conflict. And this is actually uh, one of the great benefits of the exchange between the scholars in the, the new communities and the scholars in the host countries. I grew up in authoritarian uh, and closed society uh, regimes where they always, they saw these new ideas as a threat to the state, as a threat to the country. And that's a huge difference, of course. Do you have any colleagues who are still working in Syria? Also, if so, what is their experience like working there? Yeah, I still have friends and colleagues who are uh, living in Syria and looking for the opportunity to leave Syria. Now, the economic situation in Syria has a huge impact on the decision of the Syrians inside Syria is to leave because there are no state services, there is no electricity, no drinking water. And at the same time, uh, the default of, of the Syrian bound, that creates what we call it uh, a huge impact on the middle class. And then, of course, the cost of the living inside Syria has become very, very difficult uh, for any uh, Syrian who belongs to the middle class or even upper middle class because of the inflation. All of that create an environment for most of the Syrian academics to look for a ways uh, to leave Syria rather than uh, to stay and contribute. They see there are a case of pessimism around the, the communities where they feel there is no hope, there is no uh, light at the end of the tunnel, and we should be able to leave in any way to, to start a new life. Europe, it witnessed one of the largest wave of refugees uh, from Syria in 2014 and 2015. As example, Germany hosted in one year more than 700,000 Syrian refugees. This is why my recommendation to any host country to encourage 
uh, those Syrian refugees for more integration programs, projects, and policies rather than to exclude them from any type of funding or prevent them from getting any type of uh, uh, work permits or prevent them from uh, the pathway into citizenship. Because I've seen in the last five years a lot of success stories among the Syrian refugees. If they have the, the environment to continue their work, continue their research, that um, will be a great contribution and added value uh, to the humanity and to the field. As example, four Syrian refugees succeed in the parliamentarian election in Germany. That will not happen without the interrogation that Germany put in place in the, in the last decades. This is why it's an example for other countries to do the same. That will help the Syrian refugees and it also will help uh, the, the host countries and the host community in, in overall. Because the, the new host countries also they need uh, new forces in the marketplace. And, and this, the Syrian refugees happy to, to contribute and uh, play a role in the growth of those in, in new countries. So what would you say to your fellow academics who are still in Syria? Yes, don't lose hope. I know in the situation inside Syria is, is very tough and difficult. I know it, how hard it is to continue your work in your academic institutions inside Syria. But don't lose hope because we still need any contribution from anyone, especially from the academic community and scientist community. Those who contribute to growth if of any society and Syria need you and your contribution. As you know, the Science in Exile initiative draws on existing networks to convene different information available for refugee and displaced scientists. From your perspective, what can organizations and initiatives around the world do to be most effective? I do believe the res resiliency of, of the scholars and uh, scientists in exile or the refugees those will be able to adapt with the new environment because they come with the attitude of appreciation. I think there are some institutions who help me and organizations who help me. Of course, when I came here as a fellow at the U.S. Institute of Peace, which is one of the largest research institutions here in Washington, D.C. area. But always there are other areas you have to discover by yourself, like the social life, the political life, and in all of that. And I wish if I got some assistance in that areas, because you need a lot of tips and assistance from friends through the years to be able to accommodate all these changes. Yeah, and as you know, in the weeks after this podcast has gone to air, the Science in Exile project will launch a declaration that calls on the global scientific and academic communities to develop a unified response to displaced and refugee scientists. Radon, what do you hope that this declaration will achieve and why should the people listening take the time to find out more? This is something I'm proud to be part of it because I see myself in the declaration and I saw a future in such declaration. With the help of this initiative and the new institutions, be able to classify the, the scientists in exile or the scholar refugees as a glass need certain protection and need certain attention. With this declaration, I think we'll be achieved that. The next step will be able to advocate on behalf of this declaration to be an international de declaration like the Human Rights Declaration in 1948. Be happy and proud of this moment and this declaration. 
Yeah, and it goes without saying, Radwan, you've worked against a lot of oppression and injustice. But during your work with so many organizations, what has given you the most amount of hope for the future and what is it that motivates you to keep going? Always actually I'm optimistic and always say optimism is a muscle and you have to use it to get more stronger. I see a better future because I saw uh, Syrian refugees everywhere uh, be able to interrogate and adopt and be able to excel within the new communities in, in record time, in two or three years. Even they don't know the language, they don't know the economic system, the sophisticated way of life, but they still be able actually to adapt and excel. That's given me a hope that despite of all the difficulties that the Syrian society is going through, uh, we'll be able to rise again and be able to build the Syria all we're proud of as a Syria democratic country. Yeah. And do you have any stories from your work as a human rights activist um, that still inspire you to this day? Yes, of course, I have a lot. But one of the stories always resonate with me um, in 2003 when I was in Syria. And my organization, Damascus Center for Human Rights Studies, we started to publish reports. And uh, it's a huge risk to publish a human rights magazine inside Syria under the cover and secretly. And also we distributed uh, in in secret way to the activists, to the interested people. And I remember when I tried, when when we printed the second edition of of this human rights magazine, you can go in jail for 10 years if the Syrian security uh, detained you or arrests you and you have a copy of this magazine. And I remember one of the citizens who's in the street took this magazine He came to me and he said, are you okay? I said, yeah, why not? And he said, I think you are stupid because you're doing that and you know the risk of doing this. And 10 years later, the same person sent me an email that he kept the copy and he's now in Germany and he's continued to work for the human rights in Syria. It's I amazed and every day I open this email because it's give me hope. I never imagined that an intended event like that can contribute to the build and the well-being of a person through his life. And this is why I always emphasize of do the good thing, even small things, it can contribute and change other people's lives. Thank you, Radwan Ziad, for being on this episode and sharing your story with Science International. This podcast is part of an ongoing refugee and displaced scientist project called Science in Exile. It's run by Science International, an initiative in which three global science organizations collaborate at the forefront of science policy. These are the International Science Council, the World Academy of Sciences, and the Interacademy Partnership. For more information on the Science in Exile project, please head over to council.science slash science in exile. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented by our guests do not necessarily reflect the values and the beliefs of Science International.